Have you ever had someone make you a promise and then not keep it? That can be rather devastating, depending upon the promise, of course, and how much maybe you were counting on it, how much you came to believe in that promise and maybe even put your faith in that promise, right? When, when there isn't much riding on a particular promise or if you have no faith in a promise that is made to begin with, then there typically isn't a whole lot of letdown when that person fails to come through. It's hard not to think of politics and politicians when we talk about broken promises, and yet it's difficult to get too bent out of shape when they don't make good on their promises because I think it seems so common for so many politicians to make, uh, make empty promises in order to get elected and then they make excuses once they are elected for why they're unable to make good on those promises. And so generally speaking, there's very little emotional investment for me when a politician makes a promise because there's very little faith that he or she will actually follow through. Of course, there are exceptions uh, to that because there are some exceptional politicians who have earned people's trust and have a track record of fulfilling their promises, simply making the point that not all broken promises have a remarkable effect on us, do they? Whereas a promise that we have placed life-altering faith in, that kind of promise that we build our lives around, when those promises are broken, often we are broken. When a man and a, and a woman pledge their lives to one another in the sacrament of marriage, we structure our entire lives around that promise. We, we take certain jobs. We move to certain cities. We buy certain cars and houses. We attend certain churches, make certain friends, get involved in certain activities and hobbies. We, we make decisions about having kids and how to raise them, where to send them to school. So we, we invest massive amounts of time and money and energy into those relationships, all based on a promise. From this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. When we're married, I think just about every area of our lives is structured with that promise in view, in mind. And so when, when that promise is broken by one or both leaving the marriage, often we become broken. Real devastation often follows in our lives and in the lives of those around us, our kids, our family members, even close friends, because we came to believe in and put our faith in that promise. If, if you think about it, most of the areas of our lives and the lives of those around us are affected by promises, influenced by promises that are made to us or that are made by us, whether they come in the form of uh, an employment contract, a company's commitment, a promise to us to give us a job, based on our commitment, our promise to do the job, right? It can be membership at a church, an acceptance letter from a university or a loan from the bank. I think everything from tax returns to insurance policies, just about everything in between. We live our lives and make decisions daily based on promises that have been made to us or that we've made to others. And of course, the greatest promise, the greatest promise of them all for followers of Jesus Christ, the greatest promise ever since before time began is the promise 
of Jesus Christ himself and the results of that promise that we can with absolute certainty depend and rely upon and put all of our faith and trust in. Results that will reverberate throughout all of eternity, which, by the way, includes our lives in the here and now. And so our entire lives are, or at least they should be, built upon and structured around that promise that is Jesus Christ. Ultimately, every single thing that we do and say and think and feel and express should be affected by and influenced by that promise. And yet, uh, inexplicably, Sometimes we as believers, as followers of Christ, we live our lives as if we're not 100% convinced that he's actually going to make good on that promise to be who he says he is and to do what he has said he would do. As if there's still some question to be answered or something for him to prove to us before we're totally convinced, which I'm telling you is a critical error in our thinking. We make a mistake when we wonder if God will come through for us. Why? Because he has come through for us. Whether his promises are fulfilled on the same day that they're given, or a year later, or a thousand years later, he always makes good on his promises. And so the way in which we experience him fulfilling those promises, whether he does it uh, when we want him to, or how we want him to, or not, it doesn't make him any more or less God. He is who he is. And our experience of him, whether meeting our approval or not, does not alter him who he is in any way, shape, or form. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses says, The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God keeps his promises distinctly because that is who he is. A covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. And our faithfulness in believing that, or a lack of it, has no bearing whatsoever on the veracity, the, the truthfulness of that statement. God is God. And so our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence, and likewise, our hopelessness. Our doubt, our distrust, and our uncertainty, all of those things may have a great effect on who we are, but they have absolutely no effect on who God is. Okay, our confidence in him isn't what makes him worthy of confidence. Our faith in him is not what makes him faithful. Our trust in him is not what makes him trustworthy, and our hope in him is not what guarantees the hope that we have in him, which is precisely why the Apostle Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him, not in us. Second Corinthians 1.20, meaning all of God's promises are actually fulfilled in Christ. And by the way, the word promise in that verse is a Greek word, epangelia. It refers to a pledge or a divine assurance of good. So according to Paul, all of the good that God has committed to doing for us in our lives is found in Christ because of who he is. And thank God for that. I'm so thankful that his promises for us are all wrapped up in who he is and in what he does. And so I wonder sometimes why we give ourselves so much credit as if God being God sort of depends on us. 
which is not only errant thinking, of course, but it places undue pressure on ourselves to try and work and will his promises into fulfillment in our lives when all that really accomplishes is to reinforce our own insecurities and wear us out in the process. Knowing that, of course, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. So why do we allow ourselves to become so anxious about elections and economies, wildfires? Talking to myself now, right? The weather, the stock market, how much people like us or don't like us, and everything else that we worry about them. I'm not talking about being unfeeling, okay? Of course, we can have concern and we can even grieve over situations in our lives and in other people's lives. There's nothing wrong with that. But so much of the anxiety that plagues believers today is a matter of fact rooted in doubt that God actually is who he says he is. We probably wouldn't express it that way consciously, but that is certainly how we behave when we worry ourselves half to death over outcomes that we are not in control of. Referring to Jesus, Peter said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. So do we labor for Christ? Do we sacrifice for him? Do we practice obedience and service to him? Of course we do. We do all of those things. But at the end of the day, the fulfillment of every single promise is found in him, not in us, because of who he is, which is exactly what we see in our story today as we finish our study through the book of Esther, where we find God's people not only celebrating the fulfillment of specific promises to them from hundreds of years earlier, but also experiencing the fulfillment of specific promises to all of his people, including us today. Promises that, honestly, we need to be reminded of. In fact, it is so important for us to remember the fulfillment of his promises that this particular celebration in this story is instituted in perpetuity for the Jews, as we'll see, so that they will never forget, he says, what he did for them, but also so they will never forget who he is. And much in the same way, we need to be reminded not only of his promises, but we need to remember exactly who it is that made those promises to us and all that he's done for us, which is our source of confidence and hope for the future. It is Christ, and so that we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret or be anxious about anything, really, because God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That means he is the one who will never break his promises. We're going to look at some of those promises this morning in our story, which should give us really tremendous confidence and hope for our future 
no matter what we may be facing today. So let's turn to Esther chapter 9, and we'll pick up the story where we left off last week. We'll, we're going to finish the book today. There are only 16 verses left in the remainder of chapter 9 and chapter 10 combined. And just to revisit the events preceding these final verses before we read, you'll remember the Jews have just had two very successful days defending themselves against their enemies across the Persian Empire who were seeking to destroy them under a royal edict created by Haman, the descendant of Agag, who was king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of God's people. And so after two days of fighting, the Jews kill over 75,000 of their enemies, which was a complete and overwhelming victory that not only spared the Jews from being annihilated, but also cemented the fear and respect of Mordecai and Esther and really all of the Jewish people in the hearts and minds of the Persians throughout the empire in what amounted to a complete reversal of what was planned originally against the Jews. But even more than all of that, this was the fulfillment of an ancient promise by God to the Jewish people from a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy 25 and then commanded uh, to King Saul to carry out 400 years after that and yet Saul failed to carry out that command. And so instead of fulfilling this promise through Moses or Saul or through David, these renowned mighty men of God, God chooses to do it through a young Jewish girl whose parents had both died she was raised in exile in a pagan nation whose leadership was committed to wiping the Jews off of the face of the planet. There's a, a Koine Greek or ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was produced during the intertestamental period, the time between the New and Old Testaments. And in the Septuagint version of Esther, there are additional chapters which we don't consider divinely inspired, but if nothing else, they give us insight into how the story of Esther was understood and interpreted during that time period. And in one of those added chapters, Mordecai has a prophetic dream and interpretation where he describes himself and Haman as two dragons and Esther as a little spring that became a mighty river. I would say that is certainly an accurate description of the astounding progression of the life of this little Jewish girl. How in the world... Could such a profound promise given to the entire nation of Israel be fulfilled through such an unassuming, humble young girl without any prospects of her own for a notable, let alone history-changing future? Certainly Esther could never have predicted or engineered such an extraordinary life for herself. How could it ever be that the promise, salvation for God's people would come this way? It's because all of the promises of God find their yes in him. It was his plan all along. In fact, a thousand years earlier, when the promise was made through Moses, he said, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Deuteronomy 25, 19. And at the close of Esther's story, just as the seed of Amalek is blotted out, the celebration of Purim is instituted. Why? So that the Jews would never forget, which was and is today 
by the way, a celebration of remembrance, not only of what God did in fulfilling his promise, but in who he is, a promise-keeping God. It is nothing short of awesome to see the plan of God for his people unfold over a thousand years. And in truth, it is still unfolding today. So let's read the story together. As usual, I'll stop and comment along the way, but we're going to move fairly quickly through to the end of the book. And then we're going to go back and focus on verse 22 of chapter 9, which I believe is the heart of this part of the story. So let's start at chapter 9, verse 20, where we left off last week, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that has been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they had faced in the matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed that these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So this is the inauguration and the institutionalization of the Feast of Purim, which the Jews still celebrate today. And just as we see in verses 20 and 21, that Purim in antiquity was celebrated on two different days according to the two days of fighting and subsequent peace. Likewise today, Jews all around the world still celebrate Purim on Adar 14, except for those who live in one of the cities that were traditionally considered walled at the time of Joshua, which include uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, and Jericho, where they, they celebrate on Purim uh, on Adar 15 with Adar roughly corresponds to the month of March. And just as a point of interest, the Jews still send gifts of food to friends and family during Purim today, and they gather at the synagogues where the book of Esther is read in its entirety. And while the story is being read, everyone cheers every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, and they boo and hiss every time Haman's name 
is mentioned. It's a very festive time of celebration and remembrance still for the Jews today. And then verses 24 through 26 explain why the feast is called Purim, which is the Hebrew plural of the Akkadian or Persian word pure, which refers to the dice or lots that were cast by Haman in divination to determine the day of slaughter for the Jewish race. And so calling the feast Purim is meant to remind the Jewish people that no matter what men may say or do, God is the ultimate arbiter of our future. He is in control of our lot in life, and he alone is responsible for fulfilling the promises of his people. And the fact that the Jewish people still recognize and celebrate Purim today is in fulfillment of verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And interestingly, and yet another fulfillment of an ancient promise, verse 32 says, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And back in Exodus 17, 14, when the Lord promised to wipe out the memory of the Amalekites, he told Moses to write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So here we are. The battles are won. Purim is established so the Jews will never forget what God did. He fulfilled his promise. And so they will never forget who he is, a promise-keeping God. And all of that is written down, recorded, for all the generations to come. And then the book closes with chapter 10. Three final verses, which after all of the turmoil, all of the uncertainty and manipulation and lies and secret plotting and outright war, these final three verses paint a final picture of God's people at peace. Let's read chapter 10 together. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So King Ahasuerus reinstitutes the regular tax, which was suspended uh, temporarily back in chapter 2 in celebration of the new queen. The Jews are now finally at peace and under the protection of Mordecai and Esther, who incidentally, as tradition has it, lived out their lives to the fullest, while according to the 4th century B.C. historian Herodotus, King Ahasuerus was actually assassinated in his own bedroom by the commander of his own royal bodyguards, because of an illicit affair, the, the details of which will make your head spin. It's rated R, so we, we won't take the time to read that story. It's amazing to me that a guy who has hundreds of concubines, yet he can't seem to live without another man's wife. So he's killed for it, which also underscores the glaring disparity between the ongoing turmoil of the Persians and the simultaneous peace of the Jews. And so all of that is in conclusion to this wonderful and powerful story that we've explored together here over the past couple of months. And yet in all of these concluding verses, there's one verse 
Verse 22 of chapter 9 that really encapsulates the essence of God's promise to his people, both then and now. And so we're going to go back to that verse and spend the remainder of our time today with the words that Mordecai wrote to his people as our focal point, as those words reveal not only the heart of this story, but the heart of God's promise to us today as well. And so just for context, uh, let's go back to verse 20, and we'll read through the first part of verse 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. So the first part of God's promise to his people that was fulfilled in this story is the fact that he turned their distress into peace. So Mordecai says that Purim will forever be a day that the Jews celebrate relief, peace from their enemies, relief from the distress that the Jews had lived under for so long. In fact, Purim was all about that relief, that peace that they had so longed for. It wasn't about the war. Uh, Karen Jobes points out that if you look at uh, most holidays that commemorate war or victory or even military hostilities, they're typically celebrated on the day of the battle itself. So, for instance, uh, Bastille Day in France, July 14th. Boston Massacre Day, March 5th. Cinco de Mayo in Mexico, May 5th. Revolution Day in the former Soviet Union, November 7th. All celebrated on the day of the battle itself. But Purim isn't celebrated on the day of battle. The fighting between the Jews and their enemies in Persia took place on Adar 13 and 14. But the celebration of Purim is on the 14th and 15th, respectively, the days after the fighting occurred. Why? Because they aren't celebrating the battle. They aren't celebrating the fighting or the strife or the slaughter of their enemies. No, they're, they're celebrating the relief, the peace they experienced after the fight was over which is precisely what God promises us today. Relief, peace from our distress, even to the point of celebration. In Philippians 4, 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, rejoice, celebrate with one another. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. So, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All of his promises find their yes in him. That's a promise. It's relief from our distress. It's peace beyond our understanding. In 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ himself, will restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, I will give you relief, peace from the enemy. It's a promise from God fulfilled in Christ that when we humble ourselves, just as Esther did and just as Mordecai did, and he says, cast your anxieties on him. They fasted and prayed for three days. And resist the enemy, he says, just as Esther did and just as Mordecai did. God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us us, just as he did for Mordecai and just as he did for Esther and just as he did for all of the Jews. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his promise is as good today as it was then. Okay, we may not be promised a trouble-free life. We may not be promised a life free of distress, but we are most certainly promised victory over that trouble and peace in place of that distress. And so we can celebrate in the knowledge that he made a promise through his word. And then he modeled the promise through the nation of Israel. And then he sent his son to achieve the promise through his life, death, and resurrection. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to realize the promise in and through our lives. And all that's left for us is to accept the promise that has been freely offered to us. So why do believers live in fear of the enemy? When victory over him and relief from our distress has already been promised, modeled, achieved, and realized it's because we haven't fully accepted it. We think that we still have to push all the right buttons and check all the right boxes before we can experience peace, relief from our distress, even in the midst of it. But he didn't say all the promises of God find their yes in you. No, he said all the promises of God find their yes in him. All that he expects from us is to humble ourselves before him, cast all our anxiety on him keep our faith firm in him because the promise of victory over our enemy and peace in our distress is only and always found in him the circumstances may be different from our story today but the promise is the same at times this life will most certainly give us all that we can handle and sometimes a whole lot more But even in the midst of it, he offers us peace that passes our understanding and relief from our distress. We just need to accept that which he has already promised us. Then if we continue reading, verse 22, Mordecai obligates them to celebrate the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. Okay, the second part of God's promise to his people that was fulfilled in this story is the fact that he turned their sorrow into joy. In verses 24 and 25, Mordecai writes, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he writes, When it came before the king, the word it in that verse, when it came before the king, the word it there is a feminine pronoun in the Hebrew, which means that could be a reference to either Esther or the evil plot. But the point is, even if it refers to the plot, that plot wouldn't have come before the king if Esther hadn't come before the king. 
Keep that in mind as we keep reading. He says, when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And so in an instant, the Jews' sorrow was turned into gladness. How did that happen? It happened when Esther took her sorrow before the king. When it came before the king and Peter said, cast all your anxiety, all of your sorrows on him because he cares for you. Just as Esther's sorrow was turned to gladness once she took that great sorrow before the king, we must take all of our sorrow before our king for it is only in his presence that we can find true and lasting joy. Just before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being had been born into the world. So also you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 20 through 22, the joy that he's talking about here can only be found in the presence of Jesus Christ. And we've been given free access to him by way of his Holy Spirit. And I can attest to you firsthand, and I'm sure that many of you can as well that there is sorrow in this life that can only, only, only be turned into joy when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. When you're in full-time vocational ministry, you spend a significant amount of time with hurting people. I've seen enough sorrow in people's lives to last 10 lifetimes, but it just keeps coming. Because the world is broken and it is full of broken people, which often results in the deepest kind of hurt that you would never want to imagine. And I'm telling you that counseling can only take you so far. I'm not at all opposed to certain medications, not at all, but medication can only take you so far. I've seen therapy work wonders in people's lives, but therapy can only take you so far. There are people who have been wounded so deeply, abused so horrifically, emotionally marred so unbelievably, people who have experienced loss that cannot be replaced. There are people who have been hurt to the point that pastors and doctors and therapists are unable to help them. There is sorrow in this life that is so deep and irreconcilable that there is no remedy outside of the presence of Jesus Christ. But in him, oh, in him, there's joy unspeakable. In his presence, our sorrow is turned into joy, but we have to take that sorrow before the king. We have to be willing to accept the promise that in his presence we will find a joy that no one can take away from us. So prayer, worship, 
meditation time, really, copious amounts of time in the presence of our King Jesus Christ that is sometimes the only prescription for turning our sorrow into joy because it is a promise. And he is a promise-keeping God and all of those promises find their yes in Christ. And then finally, Mordecai writes to his people to celebrate the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. That was the third and final part of the promise that was fulfilled for them when God turned their mourning into celebration. Not long before this Feast of Purim, this great celebration among the Hebrew people, back in chapter 4, it says there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The Jews were mourning their own funeral as a death sentence hung like a dark cloud over their people. And yet just a few months later, here they are throwing the party of a lifetime. Again, they weren't celebrating the slaughter of their enemies. They weren't celebrating a great military battle. They weren't celebrating the fear that they now instilled in the Persians. No, they were celebrating the promise that had been kept. And the celebration of that promise was to be recognized for all generations to forever remember who their God is and what he'd done for them. He turned their sackcloth, their mourning, into celebration. The, the 30th Psalm is a song that David wrote for the dedication of the temple, which actually occurred after his death. But nonetheless, it was the coming fulfillment of a promise. And in response, David wrote, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He takes away our sackcloth and clothes us instead with gladness. He turns our distress into peace, our sorrow into joy, and our mourning into celebration. And so David responds by saying that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. In that phrase, my glory was used in ancient Hebraic poetry to refer to one's whole being. So David's response which, by the way, is to be our response to God's promises fulfilled in our lives, is to turn from our mourning and celebrate with our whole being, with all that we are, with all of the hope and joy and confidence that we can muster. We are to celebrate the promise fulfilled, never forgetting who he is and what he's done for us. The trouble with celebrations, however, especially those that are repeated year after year over and over, is that we can begin celebrating the outcome of promises fulfilled in our lives without giving a moment's thought to the God who accomplished those outcomes in our lives. We can actually forget, and I would argue that many do forget, why we celebrate. In World War II, the book of Esther was treasured by the Jews who were imprisoned in the Nazi death camps because it promised the survival of their race despite the fact that Hitler was attempting to completely annihilate them. And of course, we know now that the hope of those who died was ultimately realized because the Jewish people did survive. Ironically, there are many Jews today 
who have been unable to accept that there is actually a God who is all-powerful and all-present because of those same horrors that happened under the Nazis. Karen Armstrong explains their sentiment this way. She says, if this God is omnipotent, he could have prevented the Holocaust. If he was unable to stop it, he is impotent and useless. If he could have stopped it and chose not to, he's a monster. In effect, these Jews have, in the words of Karen Jobes, put God on trial, found him inexcusably guilty and worthy of death, but still went to evening prayer. Jews still continue to celebrate the significance of Purim year after year. This indictment of God is poignant for when God did come into the world 2,000 years ago, he was put on trial, judged guilty and worthy of death by human reasoning, and executed. So there are Jewish people today who continue to celebrate Purim year after year out of religious and cultural tradition, even though they have completely forgotten God as the reason for their celebration. Not all of them, of course, but very many of them. In fact, one of the central texts of rabbinical Judaism, the Talmud, prescribes drinking and celebrating on Purim until one can no longer tell the difference between the phrases, Mordecai be blessed, and Haman be cursed. And so for many, Purim has become nothing more than a drunken party with friends and family. They actually dress up in costumes and masks, some of them quite lewd, for a time of high revelry in their homes and even out in the streets. It's a massive celebration where for many, God has largely been forgotten, not unlike our Mardi Gras. And yet before we begin to think too critically of the Jews, as we gather in homes with friends and family and attend parties at the office and parades out in the streets during this Advent season, this Christmas season, I think it is entirely appropriate for us to ask ourselves, what are we celebrating? Or better yet, who are we celebrating? This Advent season is intended to be a time of expectant waiting and preparation that culminates with the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at Christmas, the coming of Jesus, which is what Advent means. And so for the next three weeks here, we're going to be learning about and celebrating the Advent of Christ because Christmas is all about celebrating the fulfillment of a promise. And of course, I'm sure most people Certainly most people in the church understand that intellectually, but in practice, what are we actually celebrating? There's nothing wrong with decorations and gifts and big meals and parties, as long as we haven't forgotten the one for whom this celebration was created. And so in all of the eating and drinking and singing and festivities, ask yourself, where is God? In all of the decorating and spending and receiving. We should ask ourselves, where is God? In all of the hectic shopping and planning and busyness of this season, I think we need to ask ourselves, where is God? Because Jesus is the promise, and it is in him that we find peace, relief from our distress. In him, our sorrow is turned to joy. In fact, all of his promises find their yes in him. Jesus is the promise and the fulfillment of everything that comes with that promise. Peace, joy, and celebration. And so if you're struggling today 
If there's distress, sorrow, and for some I think the holidays can be particularly difficult because of loss. Listen, there's a promise for you. Peace from your distress. He promises joy out of your sorrow. And yet you'll never find that promise fulfilled anywhere but in the presence of Christ himself. You see, we, we can mask our pain. We can take the edge off of our hurt. We can try to focus on other things like parties and presents and godless celebrations, but the only one who can truly fulfill the promise of peace and joy, the kind that no one can take from you, the only one who can fulfill that promise is the very one who made that promise because he is the promise. Jesus Christ, he is God, he is love, he is truth, he is healing, he is comfort, he is the only way, he is life abundant. He is our conquering king, the one who vanquishes all of our enemies and removes our sackcloth and clothes us with gladness. It is he alone who can give us peace and joy. And so it's not up to us to provide the promise. It's not up to us to produce peace and joy for ourselves because we cannot, no matter how hard we try, because there's sorrow in this world that we cannot overcome on our own. And so we need not try. Instead, knowing that God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we simply need to accept that promise, take all of our sorrows to the king, casting all of our cares on him because all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then when peace and joy comes, and, and it will come, then we celebrate, never forgetting who he is and what he's done. We celebrate Jesus Christ, the promise. Let's pray.